Hey everyone, uh, this is Hector Silva from Advanced Design. Uh, we're so sorry that we're starting this podcast late. Um, Got caught in traffic. Yeah, we were stuck in traffic, I guess. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we are here with Tom, um, industrial designer at Umbra. And uh, let's get to know you. Yeah, so... So we're actually um, at a public library here in Chicago. So if there is background noises and if there's people, um, children running, please please excuse that. Um, but yeah, Dom, let's uh, talk about you, what you do, where you're from. Yeah, no, okay. So uh, I was born and raised in Rochester, New York. So um, that's way over on the East Coast for anyone who's familiar with that area in upstate New York. Um, I went to school at the Cleveland Institute of Art, so I tried to escape Rochester, which was like a decaying city, by going to another Rust Belt decaying city, which is fun. Uh, and then uh, I ended up working for Umbra in Toronto, Canada, so right up in that area where I was born and raised. Um, so yeah, kind of an interesting ride along the way. Yeah, and then, I mean, obviously, before you got to work at Umbra, what did you do after or during when you were in school? Do I get to that point? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, um... When I, I guess I could talk about my school experience. So like I went to the Cleveland Institute of Art for industrial design. And um, I did two internships during my time there. One at Volume Studios with Todd Hurwitz. So if you guys should check out Volume Studios online, very cool consultancy. Uh, there I picked up a lot of skills in like sketching and a lot of the, uh, what do you call it, hard skills. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, so that's why I started doing CAD work um, and kind of building uh, my skill set, like as a sophomore at the time. So building that kind of basic skill set. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after that, I returned to school. Then uh, my junior year or third year, if you're in Canada, uh, I decided to do my internship with Motorola in Chicago again. Just can't stay away from the city. And uh, there you work on a lot of finer details. So like the thing I think illustrates that, you know, experience the best is that we had like a 30 minute meeting where people argued about the position of like side keys, which are these buttons on the side of the phone mm -hmm. for like 30 minutes. And we're talking about splitting millimeters. Like, oh, I think it should be two millimeters this way or up this way. And it's funny because that's, you, on the back end, you have a lot of those discussions because that's where you learn about manufacturing and the limits of manufacturing. So like having them in one direction might be more ergonomic, but it might make the phone less structurally sound. And so you have to find a balance between those two things. So the combination of those two is really great because you know I got to do both the front end and the back end of the design process mm -hmm. pretty thoroughly. Um, and then I took all those skills, went back my senior year and entered the International Housewares uh, Student Design Competition and decided to submit a few projects to that. And then that yeah. whole the distinction being the only due to win first, second, and third in the contest. <laughs> which attracted the attention of one of the judges who was the co-founder of Umbra. And he was like, you should check this guy out. So I went, interviewed with them, and I was like, great, Houseware sounds cool. So I then immigrated to Canada, and here I am today. So that's, <laughs> that's a quick rundown of my story. Oh, background, awesome. you know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, Just casually won the Housewares project, uh, the Housewares. It was hard work, I should yeah. yeah. But I set my mind to it, and that's... Uh, First, second, and third place. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. Um, so now you're in Umbra. Um, what are some things, what are some exciting things that you can talk about, about working at Umbra, the work environment there, working with other designers, and do you have anything that is out on the market? 
Yeah, uh, so I have been, I started at Umbra doing a lot of work in the kitchen area. Mm -hmm. So one of the products I have out in the market now is like a paper towel holder, which is supposed to be the uh, best paper towel holder out in the market. So check nice. that out, try it out for a spin. Nice uh, it has a rotating base um, that you put a paper towel holder or paper towel on. And then as you pull the paper towel, there's a little fin or ticker, we call it, mm -hmm. that kind of like a game show wheel that slows down the roll and then you can pull the paper towel, like one piece at a time. Mm -hmm. So that if your hands are messy or if you're doing something else, you can just grab one sheet with a hand and then clean up. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of convenient. So that's like the big thing that's launched now. I have a few other projects coming out this year that I don't know if I'm at the liberty to say exactly what they are. Um, but yeah, I've been doing a lot of like paper towel holder work. Um, one thing that attracted me to Umbra that I think is really interesting, well, there's two things that are kind of weird about Umbra that are also good things. Uh, one, they give credit to individual designers who work on projects. So, like, if I work on a project, uh, you can flip it over and see like my name on the product, which mm -hmm. I think is cool because I think there's very, very, very few design companies in the world where you can take a project and be like, yes, I kind of have ownership over this idea mm -hmm. and making it. So, I, I really like that aspect. And two, I think I talked a little bit about like the intern internship experience. So, like, um, I did like consulting work, which I thought was really cool, but it's really front end heavy and you don't get to kind of realize projects that are on the back end. And then there's also the corporate work, which, you know, mm -hmm. you spend a lot of time in the back end. So I think Umbra kind of melds those two loves together because um, Umbra does corporate work. So kind of like the Umbra products that you see for, um, you know, that we work on under the Umbra name. And then we do a lot of work with other retailers, help them produce products for themselves. So we kind of act as like a design consultancy for different retail partners. Yeah. Which I think is neat because then you have a whole different set of considerations you have to work with that you know you don't have to do with your umbra job. So I think you kind of are designing for different customers and it helps keep you fresh and more engaged with the work you do. Now, when you say that Umbra gives ownership to a designer when you buy their product and it's in the packaging, um, does that mean that that designer only worked on that product by himself? Yeah, uh, in that case, it can be. Interesting because sometimes if you have if you have more than two designers that work on something, then it just becomes an Umbra Studio project. Okay. Uh, like I'll say Umbra Studio on the bottom, not like three different designers. Gotcha. Names. Um, but yeah, usually, I mean, obviously it's a team and we all work together as a team. Mm -hmm. And so you have to come together and, you know, provide feedback and work on the projects together that you might necessarily have the idea for. Um, but for the most part, I'd say, yeah, if your name is on it, then you've been really engaged with the whole time. And You're like the lead, project. pretty much. Yeah, more or less. Although we do have design leads who... Right. Gotcha. No, that makes yeah. sense. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, so, how so long cool. have you been at Umbra for? I'm coming up in about two years now. So nice. Not uh, not too long, but no. in the design world, I think two years is okay. <laughs> becoming a while to stick around in a place. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people come and go. But yeah, yeah now it's my goal is to stay and like really develop a strong portfolio of products with Umbra. So I think they give a, definitely have a good opportunity to do that. That's awesome. So what in the world are you doing here in Chicago? <laughs> so one thing Umbra does, which is cool, is that um, we reach out to uh, different universities and colleges. That's part of my job is to reach out to these um, different chain or outlets for design and basically work with them to help us produce products. So like one thing we really like to do is, um, you know, like find different sources of like new talent whether it be for hiring or for developing products and explore different avenues. One of those is universities. So uh, what I did was with Hector actually, is uh, set up a collaboration with Notre Dame 
uh, where you're currently faculty. And uh, basically we gave the students a brief just like we would any other professional designer and uh, asked them to work on a project. And so yesterday was the tail end of that, which was pretty awesome. So good job Notre Dame kids. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I get to take all this work after critiquing it, take it back to Umbra, and we're going to see if anything is viable for us to produce. Sure. So what happens after you take this information back to Umbra internally? Um, not just for me, because I work yeah. not, because, not just because I work at Notre Dame, but you do this with multiple schools. Yeah. Do you go back and if you find an idea that's awesome, does your team internally refine it or do they work with that student? Yeah, so that's we like to say that we're gonna take an idea and kind of umberfy it because obviously, right. especially with the student projects, right. you know, there's gonna be quite a few things that need to be resolved, mm -hmm. whether it be fitting our brand guidelines, mm -hmm. um, being manufacturable is a big one, like we have to make sure it's manufacturable. Making sure the item hits cost, mm -hmm. um, and then carrying like the spirit of the brand. So right. sometimes it needs to be tweaked slightly. Sometimes it's a lot of tweaking. But what's important is that the original seed of the idea is still there. Right. So it might not be immediately recognizable as like the student's original work, but in the end, it's about the core concept. Mm -hmm. Right. And and they still get credit for it. And they get credit yeah. for it. Gotcha. That's awesome. Even if we tweak it a lot. Right. So does the student, is the student still involved when you guys are umbrifying it? Yeah, no, we, uh, we provide them with updates as okay. we're going and see how they feel about it. Um, for the most part, we don't have them to choice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you sign an agreement saying like, oh, right. Umbra agrees to take the idea and we're right. to the Umbra brand. So for sure. And obviously, you know, not many people get items produced as a student, no. so I think that's really cool. It's really rare for a company to do this, so it's hey, if, awesome. I, if I was in their shoes, I'd be like, here, just take it, you know, make it into something completely different. Yeah. 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 Well, the idea that they're providing you with this, their unique idea, obviously, whatever idea you choose has to be pretty good. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Um, yeah, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be a designer in Toronto? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I carry a unique perspective just mm -hmm. because I come from like the American design community, and you know it's a little different. I think it's. Um, I've talked about before that design in Canada is not. There's not a whole lot of product development going on in Canada. Obviously, there's a bit, but Umbra is definitely one of the larger companies that's doing that. I think a lot of design in Canada is definitely structured around smaller studios that um, produce items kind of on their own. So. You almost have kind of like designer craftspeople that design something, but then actually make it themselves in Canada, mm -hmm. which I think is really cool. But it's also a little bit different than what we have here, you know. So yeah. it's it's interesting in that regard. Um, I don't think the design community is as vocal as um, the American one, and <laughs> pretty loud. And so um, one thing that I asked some of my colleagues, like, why why do you feel this is, and they think it comes down to that Canadians might be a bit more humble than Americans. Like they're not as, uh, they don't show off their work as much. And I feel like the community is not as together, I guess, which would be something I'd like to change or sure. you know, something that we could change together. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting like that. Uh, and then a lot of design is centered around interior design. So a lot of studios that do do product design are mainly interior design studios that do product design on the side just because they're more interested in it. So I think uh, in Toronto, there's a lot stronger tradition of interior design. So that's about where we are now. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're having trouble with the live stream. Apparently, it keeps getting paused. I think 
Are you on library Wi-Fi? The awesome part about being here is that this space is really beautiful. Yes, it is. But I think it's jamming my data because I'm not on the Wi-Fi. Oh, okay. Because I don't trust Wi-Fi. But maybe I need to be on the Wi-Fi. Maybe. Now, this is what's important to us. Okay, so this, we're going to keep capturing the audio. So you can keep talking. Okay. What do you, what do you want um, to talk about? I think one thing that I do want you to talk about, and we're going to try to lower our voice just a little bit because I don't know. I don't think this is soundproof. <laughs> Great. But... Um, we're about to ASMR this. <laughs> Welcome to context. So you, you've, okay, you're a pretty young dude. You have racked up a bunch of design awards and you're pretty humble about it and have worked. Like you have a pretty good uh, career. Like starting off your resume is pretty awesome and strong and diverse so far. Um, what is, if you can, if you can tell you, you know, um, if you can give advice to undergraduate Dom yeah. from when you started school about some things to watch out for, some things to look out for, some things uh, that you know now, yeah. that everyone wants to know. <laughs> what would you tell yourself? Dom. Yeah, what would you tell him? I would say, um, you know, really set some, some big goals and don't be afraid to achieve them. I know it sounds kind of like, stereotypical but really if you believe something then you know you can do it especially in the design world and you will find whatever means possible to get there so like for example when i won the housewares awards i went to the housewares show a year earlier walked in there and said i'm gonna be here next year and i basically spent all my time and effort working to get to that point so i think it's about i would say you know follow through more on those kind of things and then Another one that I like to say is like network as much as possible because like any job that I've had has never been through a formal interview process. It's always been through networking and meeting people out in the community. So, um, you know, Hector, you're a good example of someone who knows everyone. Like, <laughs> he's got a network like Hector. That's what I tell you know. We haven't met yet. Yeah. Well, first of all, go meet Hector. <laughs> Leverage those connections. Go to Chicago. Yeah. Uh, the next one is don't be... I would definitely tell my young self, don't be ashamed to show your work. So a lot of people, especially me, I was very kind of self-conscious about my work. Like maybe it's not good enough to show um, publicly or maybe like, I don't know, like my level, my technical skills not there yet. But, you know, we're in a visual field. So I think it really, what you really have to do is just put your work out there. And no matter what you think of your work, someone else is going to notice. And that's when the opportunities happen. Um, I would go back and tell young Dom that, you know, at the last square one, um, I think Wang and Ang gave a, they gave a presentation and one of their quotes was, um, what was it? Like, there's no such thing as luck. Luck is like the intersection of preparation and opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like, I love that quote because I think that, you know, a lot of our field is finding these kind of opportunities for yourself. And then so long as you're prepared, so long as you have this work, so long as you're showing it, when that moment comes through, like, you got to be ready to take it. So... I, I would like to tell myself that as well. Yeah. What about like skill set wise? <sighs> skill set wise. Um, pay attention in SolidWorks class. That's what I told myself. <laughs> I was uh, pretty adamant about just using like Rhino and sticking to one suite of 3D modeling and not paying attention in our uh, 3D class. And when I got my first job, it really came to bite me because I needed to know SolidWorks. And I felt like I was starting from absolute zero. So uh, I like to tell people too that like, 
you know, 3D modeling suites are kind of like languages. Like the more that you can pick up, the better and the more fluent and capable you're going to be to communicate with different people because you never know. Each studio uses its own 3D modeling software. Each company uses different software. So the more software you can say you're familiar with, then the more likely you are to get those jobs that require them. So uh, that one for sure. Um, you can only sketch more. I feel like I never sketched enough. I look at my own sketches and I'm like, I wish I was, you know, five years more advanced than I am now. So you can never get enough of that. And lastly, probably getting in the shop and making stuff. I think one thing I didn't do enough was, because the most valuable thing when you're making a thing is to make the thing and put it in front of you to see if it works. Right. And I feel like when I was in school, I didn't do that enough with products, like make it, feel it, and mm -hmm. I ended up based on that. And I think now with like the advent of CAD, it's a lot easier to skip that part of the process altogether because you can already make something that looks realistic on the computer and you don't need to really figure it out in person. So I think that's a really big, important one. Yeah. So I see a ton of like rendered projects online now that are like, looks like they've never touched whatever that object is ever. So I think it's important to try that out. Yeah, I always tell my students, because I teach um, the intro to plot development class at Notre Dame, I always tell them one of the most important things that designers should do is to always think in three dimensions. Yeah. Right, like in your head, always be thinking about an object in three dimensions. Um, visualize it in 2D, sketch it on the graphics, uh, views, but also make it. No, oh, absolutely. Like you have to make it. Like You have to validate this physically. So you have to touch it, you have to feel it, you have to look at all the details and things like that. So um, Otherwise the scale can get crazy. Yeah, or things can go wrong. Yeah. And you want to... Prototyping that phase is where things should go wrong. Um, but let's transition over to that. Like, let's talk about failure a little bit. Um, something that we never talked about at our last podcast when I had Michael Detour, we talked about failure. We talked about how it is a human fear for us to fail at anything, right? And um, I had told Michael, like, yeah, like I should write a book. Like there's all there's all these books about success and mm -hmm. um there's all these books about how to do something successfully but there isn't anything about um like how to fuck up or how to fail <laughs> yeah you know like I wanna you wanna fuck up as much as possible yeah. as early as possible especially if you're a student like that's the time that's the safest time for you to mm -hmm. fuck up basically yeah. and yeah that's when you wanna do it right so tell us like when have I failed? Like when in school, like maybe do you have a good story or an experience or even now as a, as a, a professional industrial designer, have you failed at something? Um, but failure is, is good when you know why you failed, yeah, why you failed and how to reflect on it. I think for me now, like, uh, at least in my current job, a lot of failure comes down to costing. Mm -hmm. Like you can have a great idea. Uh, you can have something that people really want, but if you can't do it at the right cost, then the project gets canceled. So, you know, that's something that happens to me all the time. Like you go through all these steps of the process and then at the end of the day, if the factory says that we can only do it at this price, then you're kind of at their mercy. And then that's how that works. That's even, the, even if the idea is so good. That's the reality of design work. It's just too yeah. expensive to tool, too expensive of material choice. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. And it's something you see a lot. Wow. So um, then, that being said, are you designing with manufacturing, um, when thinking about manufacturing methods, in the first 
Yeah, uh, I think that's going to be, at least for me and what I've heard from a lot of other people, is that the biggest challenge when you transition from school to you know the real world is that now you're making real stuff on a mass scale. And there's a lot of other factors at school that you could just kind of ignore or sweep under the rug or be like, oh, haha, yeah, I can't mold that. But in the, the real world, like, yeah, those are considerations you have to think about from the onset. And when you're just coming out of school with the mindset that like okay like i don't i don't actually know how this is going to be made you can't really like yes your way through that in the real world so i i think that part of it is you start you start failing because you submit concepts to like your company that are just not feasible because you're not you know you don't have that manufacturing acumen developed yet mm-hmm. um even though you can take a bunch of manufacturing classes in school they're not gonna tell you that like you know melamine is three degrees of graft to be pulled from the mold and you're gonna make stuff that's just not possible initially. And I think that's when a lot of the early failures happen, but through that you learn like, okay, next time I'm gonna do my design, but it's gonna have the draft built in so it looks integrated with the piece instead of just like shoehorning the design after. Right. Yeah, I think that's something that we never talk about at design school. No, we and talk I, about it's not touched on enough for the, sure. The manufacturing methods, how things are made, how things are built. And then the costs, the finan- the financial aspect. Yeah, the other end is the cost. Like yeah. even if business it is aspect of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we don't get me wrong, like I had great manufacturing and business classes, but it's never a substitution for the real thing. So you know, oh, hi Z Sean. <laughs> Z Man. Um, no, that's very important. That's 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 I think that's very critical for designers to know. Yeah. Uh especially entry level right like yeah so you should be it's it's tough um employers are looking for entry level designers the expectations are already really high like whenever i I try to find jobs for my students entry level one to three years like what the hell is this but it's like you already have to have knowledge of manufacturing methods you have to have it's like a laundry list of things and you're just like that's the scariest thing is taking the leap. Like when I joined Umbra, I was like scared shitless, really. Cause I was like, I don't know if I'm prepared or ready to perform. And like, you really start to doubt yourself. And you're like, I don't know if I'm ready to take on this challenge. I don't know anything about manufacturing. I don't know anything about SolidWorks. I don't know if I'm prepared to do this, but. How do you alleviate that? You think back to why you were hired. Like they trust you. Like they saw you and they're like, okay, we think you're capable. And you know, most, if they're like my job, you know, they, they work with you and they're, they have done a lot to help train and educate me so that I'm capable of performing at that level of expectation. They mold you. They... So I think it's a little bit of like knowing that if someone's hiring you out of school, they're going to work with you to, unless they're like a startup company that doesn't know anything about design, but they're going to work with you to make sure that you can perform at that level. So a little bit is about just kind of taking that leap of faith and being like, everything's going to be okay. Don't lose sleep over it. So what happened is you got umberfied. Yeah. <laughs> they took me, umberfied me, and here I am now. Yeah. Here I am. Um, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Let's let's talk about aesthetics. Oh, boy. <laughs> how do you, as a designer, how do you determine, am I a good visual Um what's the word am i good with am i good at aesthetics yeah um, because our whole industry is desirability mm-hmm. is this gonna sell is this desirable yeah how, how do you how do you build how do you build that well 
you know, I, I think it's hard to judge yourself as that. I think other people typically, you know, whether you're uh, good at aesthetics or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's a hard one because you it's a little bit of psychology. Like you have to know what people kind of want and what looks good. A lot of it's very subjective. So like even if you think, you know, one person's really good at aesthetics, someone else might be like, ah, I don't really think they have good taste. Um, I think what it comes down to is, you know, sticking to your guns and knowing a bit of, like a lot of designers are also trained in like fine art. And it's about kind of maintaining the same principles that you learn in fine art. So like mm-hmm. balance, for example, hierarchy of, um, you know, uh, hard, what is it? Of, uh, things you know like you're not gonna not things should on a product should be competing for your attention all at the same time there should be like more subtle components more loud ones that you know are like the touch points of the product um and yeah and then learning things like you know in my school we learned about color theory so it's about applying it's kind of mechanical i know it sounds like that even though design can also be very emotion driven but there's a lot of mechanical elements that you should be paying attention to as you're designing um, so do you have like the design principles, like balance? Yeah. You have, you know, um, contrast. And... Or like the rule of thirds, like applies to photographs, applies to artwork, and applies to design objects as well. So right. it's about the best aesthetic, I guess, is one that's not obvious. Like you can't look at it and know why it looks good. Mm-hmm. It's just all the components holistically look good together. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I think there's that. There's focusing on all details of the product. So I feel like some people... Some people are very macro level, like they'll focus like only on the f- like main form. There's very micro level people that focus only on details, and it's about giving both those things, the macro and micro level, the same level of attention. So, like if you look at a cell phone like this, you know it looks. There's a camera here. There's a back. Like it looks as it looks. But then you get very close to it, and then you can see small patterning details. There's like a chamfer going around here. So it's about. One, the overall form, and then two, when you get down to a very small level, incorporating that attention to detail to that level as well, so that when you pull away, you're like, it looks good, but I don't know why. Mm-hmm. So that's, I guess that's how you can work on aesthetic, practicing it, failing, just making stuff, having people tell you it looks like shit, moving on. Like that's <laughs> what it comes what, down to. What is something students can do to get really good at aesthetics form development? Yeah, uh, we talked a little bit about this, and it's, you know, taking things that you like and admire and really breaking them down and thinking, why do I like this, or why do other people find this attractive, you know? Um, It's like, people, like, why is that person attractive? Like, oh, they have, like, a very symmetrical face, maybe their eyes are shaped, like, nicely. So it's about finding those common elements that kind of unite these attractive things and then applying it to your own work. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy. Um, and it's very subjective, so mm-hmm. it's going to take a lot of failure, but eventually you can get there. Like, I think you can teach, you know, good aesthetic to people. Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard now more than ever, uh, to do that because suddenly everyone is a designer yeah. in 2019. Everyone knows good design. We're also bombarded with so much visual information from like social media. So, yeah. and everyone's telling us what's good, what's bad. Um, but you know maybe that's helpful because for example Europe has always had a strong mm-hmm. design tradition like that like European consumers recognize good design and will pay for it mm-hmm. pay a premium for it North American consumers not so much mm-hmm. so I think that 
maybe this influx of visual information can be utilized as a way to kind of educate the public about what good design is and create more of a demand for it. So I don't know if it's necessarily a bad thing. Like if the everyday person can critique a design object, I think that that's very powerful. That's a very, that's a win for the design community. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Now here's a crazy question. We're talking about good design and visuals and form. How do you identify bad design? Uh, I think you identify bad design in two ways. One, design that's just ugly. Like you see it and it revolts you in some way internally because design is emotional. You see something that's beautiful and you're like, oh, that fills me with warmth. You see something that's ugly and it makes you pull back and like be like, oh, I don't want to look at that. You feel disgusted. Like you want to go to the bathroom. You feel constipated. (laughs) Some of us do, actor. Yeah, so it's no. there's that. So it's something that's just not visually appealing. And then there's also you can evaluate design because consumer products have a function. They have a certain utility to them. So you can evaluate them and how well they function. Mm-hmm. So the best design obviously marries these two together and you have something that looks good and functions great. Um, but I think bad design is either skewed in one area or the other too much. So you could have something highly functional that looks ugly, like I don't know, it's something that's never been touched by a designer. Or how about you tell me something that you think is ugly? Well, for example, one of my winning projects was an air conditioner, a window air conditioner, because I think they're really ugly. Like, yeah. I've never seen a window air conditioner that really fits into a home. It's just a big plastic box. Yeah. And, yeah, so that's something that's highly functional without much consideration to aesthetics. So the air conditioner now, not yeah. your design. Of course. Not. <laughs> yeah, my design's ugly. <laughs> you started by saying my design, okay. Yeah, yeah. But the white air conditioners you get at Home Depot or Walmart, yeah, those are hideous. Those are air conditioners are really hard to design because there's millions of homes. And you have to design one object that fits them all. That fits them all, but that's why they're freaking ugly. Yeah, exactly. Because the design is not like a thought. Um, but if you don't know what we're talking about, if you go on our page and uh, the posts um, yes. to to promote, you know context to promote this podcast if you swipe to the right or to the left his air conditioner is there and it's pretty awesome it's yeah, pretty sweet and now that we're talking about air conditioners we really gotta consolidate this shape <laughs> of them they're so like yeah well that's inconvenient i'm not an engineer but i think designers should really push the boundaries in terms mm-hmm. of you know like you can look at an air conditioner and be like, that's super complicated. I don't understand it. But I really dove into how air conditioners worked and yeah. tried to kind of repackage the whole thing so that you could make us, yeah, one, easier to install, two, uh, a smaller footprint so that yeah. it doesn't have to look as huge as it does. And yeah. then, you know, look better in your home. That's what I'm saying. Right. But that's something I identified as, you know, bad design as a window air conditioner. To yeah. me, it was just bad. Right. Let's let's talk about since you brought up your phone. Let's go into the consumer electronics section. Mm. What is was a good a good example of bad design in the consumer electronic? Bad design in consumer electronics. Yeah. I think the biggest uh, and this is kind of hard because is it bad design or is it good design? So if you look at for example in China, there's a lot of smartphone manufacturers mm-hmm. that are popping up that are basically copies of the iPhone mm-hmm. but is the iPhone such good design that they're imitating it and you know by extension these phones are good design or is it that it's bad design because there's no original thought in mm-hmm. you know making this a more unique or better product than the iPhone 
Well, I can answer that for you easily. The iPhone is a good design, and then the phones that copy are bad designs. Yeah, I guess you could say that. So, but uh, in CE, I think that's a huge thing. It's like clones and imitations. That's a bad design. And not only that, it's kind of uh, if you saturate the market with that, it's kind of undercutting the value of yeah. what good design is. Right. Um, Absolutely. Some people aren't going to pay for what the good design is, and then you don't have that thing driving the innovation anymore. Mm-hmm. So. The whole system collapses. Yeah, and you you worked in the consumer electronics sector when you were at Motorola, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of an area that you'd like to continue to work with in the near future, probably, right? Mm-hmm. What are you? What are your thoughts about this whole debacle that happened with Samsung Galaxy Fold? Uh, <laughs> so sometimes you have a cool idea, but you want to be first to market with it, so you kind of rush it to the market. There is everyone's breaks at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a risk. I think, well, Samsung is trying to be an innovative company and innovative companies have to take those kind of risks and sometimes they have massive failures on this front. Yeah. Unfortunately, it had to be with a folding phone and not like a Galaxy Note or anything. But well, well they, already had, they already had their failures with the Explorer. Yeah, they have a history of already rushing things to market they, like that. They, I, I, when the iPhone came out and then the whole iPhone Samsung thing came out and they went to court and that happened. I I was always like anti Samsung and always pissed off at like why why is Samsung just why why are they the way that they are? Now because all these other companies and manufacturers are popping up left and right like you're saying, now I just feel kind of sorry for Samsung because like the exploding phone mm-hmm. situation happened because engineers were rushed to design a battery that fit that did not fit. Oh, didn't fit. It didn't oh. fit. It was so tight to the oh yeah, the great tension. Yeah. And, and these are all reports that happened afterwards that came out that said the battery. You know, and, and it was all because it was rushed because they're just, like you said, whoever gets to the market first, and then the same thing with this, with this Galaxy Fold. Like I don't know what happened. I, I'm sure there's like reports of people peeling this. The screen that's not really supposed to be peeled, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, but why are you rushing something like just because it's first doesn't mean doesn't mean that it's the best? Yeah. Well, it's, unfortunately, there's obviously all these design is affected by a lot of other factors in business. It's so a lot of yeah, I mean, Samsung, is a, Samsung is a public traded company, mm-hmm. so there are stocks and stakeholders involved. There's investors, and investors to make happy. And, um, I mean, at the end of the day, like as a designer, you always answer to someone else, whether it's whoever it is. So in this case, you know, they, yeah. the investors are scared of their market share being eroded by, you know, other people that beat them to market with similar products. Yeah. Cause Samsung's not the only one working on a folding phone. No, they're not the only ones working on any kind of phone they produced. So mm-hmm. they always try to stay ahead of the pack. Just like Umbra, we always have to stay ahead of the pack mm-hmm. of other houseware's companies. And so... You know, sometimes you make you have to act quickly and you make decisions that are right or wrong. And no. in some cases, Samsung has probably made the right decisions in rushing products to market. In some cases, they've made catastrophic decisions. But yeah. it's about being able to take that risk, which is important. I must admire them for doing that. Yeah. Yep. I just can't imagine <laughs> what the financial <laughs> risks are. I don't want my crotch to blow up, so it's, <laughs> that's a downside. Yeah, don't don't put people in harm's way by rushing your designs. Um, That's but important. Yeah, moving quickly is important. That that can be really financial 
Yeah. Um, it, ha, part of me is like I'm, I'm a little excited that Samsung did this folding phone because it, it's breaking away. Like you said, it's innovative. It's something new. It's something different. It doesn't exist. But then I'm like, is folding phone... Do we need it? Yeah, do we need it? Because don't get me wrong. It looks... Eh, like for me personally, it looks all right. But I had a Nintendo DS that folded in half. You know? Like a clamshell. Yeah. And, uh, well, the OG was the Game Boy Advance SP that did that. Yeah. And then I remember the Nintendo, the 3D one. Oh, 3DS? Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. It was like a 3D, like... Yeah, it was, talk- called, it was called 3DS, right? Oh, okay. But it, 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 I don't know if it promised 3D graphics, but it, it, it really emphasized 3D, like it was interesting. But um, for phones, I don't know. I'm happy with these, you know. I think it's not so much the promise of a folding, like the phone as they've shown. I think it's the promise of having, you know, a folding device because now say a phone becomes a screen that you can just wrap up and put it in your pocket. Yeah. Like, that's what this opens the door to. And I think being first in the market means that Samsung, as of now, is going to be the most mature with that kind of technology and has right. the ability to kind of expand it in these different areas. Yeah. So I think, like, the first cell phone, it was a fucking horrible brick. Mm-hmm. And now look where we are now. So mm-hmm. I think it's that kind of move where, okay, first folding phones, this weird kind of tablet thing, but right. then that same technology can be utilized in many, many different applications. Yeah. Um, which we'll they're probably doing right now. Right. We'll see what other companies come up with. And... Definitely next year at CES. Yeah. There's going to be like hundreds of happens. And then we'll see how other, the big players, how they, because they're the ones who set the, the yeah, tone. It's the future. They're the ones who tell us what is the future. Then when Apple has a folding screen, then everyone falls in. And then the folding screen will have a notch. And then all hell will break loose. Yeah. You know what? I think the iPhone will stay the way it is. And I think the one that's going to fold. That's gonna turn into falling will be the iPad. Falling <laughs> iPad. Falling iPad. I'll fold up and like. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but like whenever Apple designs something new for the iPod Touch or the iPad, it's almost like it's almost like they do they 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 apply the technology and the design and those products first mm-hmm. before they bring it onto the iPhone. It's like Ronald Reagan with trickle down, you know. It's yeah. gonna make its way down to the uh, iPhone. It's like they're kind of testing it. If it if, like so, right now the iPad has a new design, right? It's flat. Um, does it mean that is this is this iPad right here? It's gonna set the design language for the uh, next iPhone, probably. Is this? Oh, I gotta clean my my iPad. So basically, we're is going this, back to the iPhone five. Yeah. Is this iPad? Um, what the iPhone's gonna look like? Who knows. Maybe. I'm sure some elements were carry over. I mean, all the products feel like a family, so it's not going to be surprising if yeah. that's what happens next. We'll see. Yeah. Again, we'll see what happens. The consumer electronic field sector industry is so fascinating because there's a lot of cool things that come up and are invented and innovative and presented um, at CES and other trade shows, but nothing ever happens or nothing ever. Yeah. yeah I think the. What I like about CE is that it's crazy and flashy, Mm -hmm. but what sucks about it is that within a few years, whatever product was designed is like very outdated. Like no one is taking a like, like a practical approach, a phone from the 1990s and celebrating it as like a crazy design object. And so like even the first Macintosh, you know, it looks 
it looks very of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I kind of like about houseware design is that it's a lot more timeless. Like a chair design 25 years ago is just as relevant today as it was then. More of like, you know, Charles and Raheem's. Right? Exactly. Yeah. It's an excellent example. Or it's, like Kareem Rashid. Sure. Yeah. The O chair is celebrating its 20th uh, birthday. So yeah. Shout now, can we talk about Kareem Rashid? Sure. Because <laughs> I know that he is a partner or has done collaborative Yeah, no, he is a Paso Dumbra. Um, we've talked about this prior as well. I love, I like some of his work, some of the more simple stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I get really conservative with his work. Like, I need to be like, okay, this is okay. Yeah. I don't I, love any of his work, but I, there is a lot of dislike. I think the dislike outweighs a lot of the likes. Unfortunately, I think he's the designer. Designers love to hate, you know. Is he the scapegoat? Uh, maybe. No, I'm sorry. Is he the black sheep of design? <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's kind of unusual yeah. one because I you almost have to uh, kind of. I respect the fact. You have to respect that the fact that he's made a name for himself. Yeah, and the way he, he has, whether you like the design or not, yeah. he has found his niche really, really great success. And so I think you. Nope. I think maybe instead of you know us looking at that and being like, oh well, design's stupid or like I don't like this aesthetically, um, we should kind of look at that as though how can we can emulate that to make create our own success. You know, I think. Yeah. I don't think we should be hating on the successful designers. I think we should be taking from them and learning from them. That's you know? fair. So I don't hold any ill feelings towards Good. him and his career trajectory, regardless right. of my, you know, how I personally feel about his designs. I like some things, I don't like some other things, but mm-hmm. you know, it's like that with anything. You like some stuff, you like other things. You don't have to be all into something unless right. you're Hector and you really like Apple, then you're fully yes. committed to the brand, but. <laughs> Loyalty. Yeah. So And also checks over stripes. <laughs> I'm a stripes over checks guy, so I can respectfully disagree. Um, no, that's absolutely fair. And when I've uh, watched interviews with Kareem Rashid, he um, he knows his shit. Yeah, he's a, he's a businessman for sure. Um, and uh, yeah, you're right. Like you don't have to be all 100 in in love with something. You can agree to disagree on a bunch of things. Um, no. That's what you are doing as a designer. You're going out there yeah. and trying to make cool stuff and yeah. have people enjoy it. And I think he's made cool stuff and had people. Some people, people, yeah, there's people, people There's people who there's people love it and it brings joy to their lives. And yeah. if someone is bringing joy to someone else's life, why hate on them? Yeah, that's true. There's another designer, um, Ross Lovegrove. Mm-hmm. Same thing. I love his work. Only maybe sixty percent of it, and then it's not there. It's pretty just blue sky for me. Yeah, but. The stuff that I do love about it, why do I love it? Why is this attractive? And then how can I use that to influence what I'm doing or to talk to my students about it? And exactly. Yeah. And then ask yourself, why do I love or why do I hate this? Yeah. And yeah. that's what it's about. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think the, the issue is we don't really ever talk about, we don't really reflect on this because as designers or even as humans, we're always afraid. Like, we will, of course, like, can you imagine if your track record was 100% and everything you did was loved by everyone? Scary. Really scary. <laughs> um, but I think we have to be honest with ourselves that 
I mean, of course, everyone tries to have that track record, right? Mm-hmm. That's what makes us the stressed out, anxiety level, perfectionist humans that we are. But mm-hmm. someone's not going to like your stuff, and you're just going to have to be like, what were we saying earlier? No press is bad press, or uh, yeah, I mean, no, no bad, bad marketing, no. We can't articulate ourselves today. (laughs) Basically, yeah. If you you get people talking about your work for good or bad, like if it's 50% good, 50% bad, people are still talking about you. And that's getting your name out there. That's you need that kind of recognition as a designer. So and I know this drive for that. This is a pretty bad plug. Um by my totes. (laughs) No, no, no. This is a bad plug, but I've I've a very good example of this is the Kardashians. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah, the Kardashians. Honestly, I don't know what the fuck they do. I mean, I do know what they do. Does anyone know? I, it's they. They are content creators, right? They say we don't know a lot about the bottom of the ocean, and I think we don't know a lot about the Kardashians as well. But I can tell you that everyone talks about them. Everyone likes to hear their gossip, and that just means more money in their pockets. That means so. more money right now. We should be getting. We're generating money for the Kardashians. Just talking welcome. about them right now. You're welcome, Kylie, Kim. The free advertising. But that's that's, that's it. Right? Yeah, like we're we're you're at least you know. And you know, for a lot of people, that's the metric of success. So yeah. I think it's, you're part of a dialogue. So do that, guys. Create a dialogue. Yeah. Just uh, be unbiased. Yeah. See things from both ends. See. Try to try to reflect. Try to respond. The open-minded kids don't, you know, hate on people <laughs> exclusively. Yeah. So let's talk about a couple more things before we we call it a day. Oh, um, it's already that time. Yeah, we're already coming clocking in at forty-five minutes. And again, this podcast started a little late. I, we apologize, and then we had issues with internet here for all five of our live viewers. <laughs> Hope we lost one four. Yeah. Um, let's talk about um, like mental health mental health yeah sure um, what are your thoughts about um, I, I mean again, this is something that's not really talked much about but um, you know growing up our parents are always telling us to invest in our IQ mm-hmm. go to school go to school go to school learn go to you know um, go to summer school, go to night school, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta go to school. Oh, growing up, my parents, um, we got those immigrant parents, you know, that's uh, first generation child. Yeah. You gotta go to school because your life has to be better than my life, right? Oh my god, my, I saw my grandpa a week ago and he was telling me that exact thing. He was like, Your parents' lives have to be better than my life, and you have to do better than your parents. And if you don't, you're a disappointment to the family. So, like that's that's kind of that's pressure the, you get. Like you have to do it. first generation, right? And so go to school, go to school, and investing in your IQ, right? And that's important, and I get that because we're gonna pass that on to our kids. But something that our parents did not really talk much about, at least in my family, was the EQ, the emotional, the mm-hmm. spiritual, the mental health, mm-hmm. and I wish. You know, we talked about it, and, and that's okay. We can talk about it now because I'm an adult and I talk to them about it now. But you know, like having anxiety and having being depressed and being down, are at least my parents mistook that for you're lazy, like apathy, or you know, get up and work. You're not, yeah. So, and I think that's something you know, us as designers, we we are not protected by it. Yeah, no, 
um, we need to take care of ourselves, not only, you know. So your social media, like you, you got to always be on, you know, if you disappear for a while, then people are like, well, this person's not relevant yeah. anymore. Right. Yeah. And no, I think it's good to get up and take breaks, walk away. And I mean, that's for me, a lot of the best design has come from that. It's been from like stopping what I'm doing, getting up and like showering or driving. That's when I get ideas. It's like at the random moments in between when I'm actually working. Mm. And so it's important to take that kind of time. Go yeah. out and be inspired by other things. Um, because I don't, hobbies aren't designed. <laughs> That's the big one. Yeah. I also don't believe when people are like, I breathe and live design 24 seven. Yeah. You need to chill out, go out and go experience nature, go be around architecture, go be around other people from other disciplines. Um, just immerse yourself in different cultures and different languages. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, it's different. Go try different foods. And I think it's good to have a social life. It's good to... Well, design's about perspective, really. Yeah. And people. Like, yeah. you have to know, understand, see people. And because, like, we design for it. Believe it or not, that stuff, you might... Maybe it won't happen immediately, but that, all of that will somehow trickle back into your design... Oh, absolutely. Process into one day you'll be like, oh my God, this happened to me. Um, so, yeah, so you always got to be ready for those moments. Yeah. What are some things that you do to kind of. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, de- you mentioned them a little bit there. Um, yeah. But, so, yeah, no, I'm, when I'm not designing, so when I go home at night, um, you know, one of my hobbies is like learning languages. I really like doing that and speaking to different people in their languages because that's a way of connecting with them in a way that you might not be able to um, normally. Like if someone doesn't speak English and you're able to connect with them at that level, then that gives you a perspective that you might have not had before. So that's something that's very interesting to me. So how many languages do you know? That's a hard question. So I can say with confidence, I know Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, I know German. And then uh, French, although my French coworker might disagree with that. So. <laughs> uh, a little bit of Portuguese, just because it's still similar to Spanish. I can read and write in Russian, and I'm still actively learning that one. Okay. Um, I grew up with like Lao and Sicilian spoken in my household. So Lao being the language of Laos, the Southeast Asian country. And then Sicilian being a dialect of Italian that's kind of different from normal Italian. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like listing those languages uh, when I was younger is going to be kind of an aptitude to learn other ones. So I kind of use that to connect with other people. Like I come from a pretty multicultural background myself. So um, I think it's something I always have been continuously interested in is people with kind of similar stories like that. Because since I have that kind of different background, I kind of always searching for like other people I can share this difference with because it's kind of a burden, you know, going through life and you know, trying to connect with just white people all the time. <laughs> That's amazing. So, well, so, say, uh, so, like, you can say hello in, like, 10 different languages. Yeah, sure. Why don't you say that? You want me to say hello in 10 different languages? Yeah. Okay. So uh, in Spanish. Hola. In German. Hello. It's very similar. Like, in, say, like, uh, in Russian. Привет. In Portuguese. Hola. It's like Spanish. Spanish. In French. Uh, bonjour. In uh, Japanese. Konnichiwa. <laughs> cool. 
uh, in uh, what else? You, you don't know any other languages, do you? <laughs> you gotta get out there more about other countries. I need to get out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I need to get really good at Spanish. I think I know Spanish, but I don't. Yeah. Well, I'll practice with you. Yeah. You get better. <laughs> Did you Spanish? Yeah. That's great. That's great. That's but awesome. I mean, like that kind of thing keeps me you know, engaged mentally. It's kind of a break from design. Um, it's a little bit analytical, like learning a language is kind of like doing math because it's a language has a very definitive structure to it that you have to learn. And um, it allows me to connect with people. Like I can talk to people that I probably wouldn't have been able to talk to and get different insights from. Um, so where that helps in product design is that like, for example, a very clear example is Umbra is a global company. And we design, we're Toronto-based, but we design for people around the world. And if you can talk to and gain insights from those people, it's going to make you that much more effective at making products for that kind of audience. Mm -hmm. um, if you might have not been able to communicate with them clearly in English. So that's like a very direct connection. Right. An indirect connection is you get to enjoy and experience a lot of other cultures as well. Right. And maybe you can learn a thing or two from the way they do things. Like, for example, Japanese. Mm -hmm. uh, in Japan, they have a lot of interesting cultural elements like celebrating mm -hmm. things that are broken yeah. you know that's true Mexico yeah. is like that too yeah. yeah and so it's like if you can take those and apply them to your own design practice then it becomes that much more unique and so that's what I really enjoy about it that's awesome let's wrap up this podcast okay with one question uh -oh. what is something that you want to be known for I know that's a really deep question <laughs> yeah you mean, but I think, <laughs> I think it's important for us to start to think about our legacy because I think that impacts some of the things, how we behave now, how do we act with people. That's wanna, a big question. You want to leave a good legacy, right? Yeah. You know, it'd be nice to leave a unique legacy. Like, yeah, being a good designer is something cool, but I think now it has to be a little bit more because mm -hmm. since design is expanding, it's not just about cool products. It's about impacting people's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, my legacy as a designer is like, I want to be someone who, you know, really changes lives. Like I want to touch someone's life in whatever way that might be. And I want them to be able to be like, you know, Dom has really helped me through this, whatever it may be. And then I think, yeah, I'm not sure. Awesome. No, that's I'm not sure what that looks like yet. I'm right, sure. Sure. And I'm sure that answer will evolve as well. We'll do this podcast in like 90 years and then I'll be like, there we go. Like I touched <laughs> someone's life like this. But I want them to be like, yeah, like Dom helped me. That's what I want to hear. So your service. Yeah. I want to, that kind of selfless kind of impact. impact. Mm -hmm. I want to selfishly have a selfless impact. That's a very good way. Yeah. Good, good elevator pitch. Well, thank you so much for being on Context. Thanks for having me. Um, you've done so many things. Speaking of you helping others, you've helped us a lot. You were a speaker at our last Square One conference that happened here in Chicago. Um, we are doing great things with you in the near future. I'm not going to say what that is, but... I don't even know what that is. <laughs> excited for us to reveal that very soon. And um, last but not least, we're having another podcast tonight. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, 7 p.m. So tune in. We're, we're going to speak to um, two designers. One of them is an honorary designer. She's super awesome. And the other one's a designer. Um, but very excited about that. And I'll provide more details on Instagram. 
thank you so much for being here, Dom. Yeah, it was exactly. awesome. And then uh, thank you so much to everyone that tuned in. So take care, guys. Signing off from the best country in the world. <laughs> 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 the USA.